Good morning, everybody. How are you doing today? So apparently there were a lot of people in first service that were disappointed because I gave no remarks uh, about the Oregon Ducks stunning victory over Fresno State. Um, and uh, so I wanted to, you know, make that right in this service and for those online by saying, at least we're not Washington. All right, that's all I have for you on that. So we're, we're, uh, we're continuing in our series. I love my city. I love my church. And uh, these two things go together because when you are uh, connected to the family of God, you're going to have the heart of God for the people around us. And so being faithful in our calling to be good members of the body of Christ, good members of our local church. And for, for those of us that are that call Joy Church home, we are joy people, right? We're Joy Church and we're not... Uh, we're not the only church. We're part of the broader body of Christ in our area and around the world, right? But we're excited to be part of this family and uh, excited about the distinctives that make us Joy Church. And as we pursue that calling to be part of Joy Church and be part of our uh, church, we also are called to the city, which is the world around us, the community, the culture around us. And you might be stoked about everything going on in culture around us in the city, or you might be not so stoked about what's going on, but our mission remains the same. We're called to go into the world and make disciples. We're called to carry the gospel and carry the goodness of God to the world around us. And so we've been talking about this for the past few weeks, about what it means to love our city and love our church and be a part of both and make a difference, make an impact. And so today we're going to talk about the topic of leadership. Now, be honest uh, today, uh, not like normal, uh, but today be honest and, uh, and raise your hand if maybe you would be the kind of person that says, I'm not really a leader type. Okay, this is hard for those that aren't leader types. But if you're, maybe that, that word leader sort of scares you. you go, I'm not really a leader because leaders kind of are the proud and loud and bossy people. But that's not really me. Maybe you have a little trouble with the word leader or leadership. Would you just kind of, I mean, just get it up a little bit. Okay, just do your best. Okay, just a little bit. Um, now, I, I get up here most every Sunday and, and preach and, and uh, kind of, you know, lead, so to speak, uh, from the front. But actually, my personality is um, very comfortable to not be the leader. I love control. I just don't like responsibility, you know? <laughs> yeah. How many of you are like, yeah, I, get, I like that, right? I want to, I like, call out, you know, from the stands what you should do, but I don't want to play the game, you know? Uh, but actually, uh, as a, just my personality, I'm, I'm comfortable to not be the leader um, and, and so one of the things that's been refreshing for me is to discover that in the kingdom of God, leadership looks different than maybe what our natural conception of leadership is. And the reality is that in God's kingdom, all of us are called to lead in some form or fashion because we're all called to make disciples. If, I could, if, if you could take nothing else away from our series on I love my city, I love my church, I want you to take this away. There is no such thing as a disciple that doesn't make disciples, right? To be a disciple, to be part of the church, to be part of the family, you've got to have that missional call to the city and actually take on the heart of God to reach people that don't know Jesus and help them follow Jesus, right? And so we lead in that way. Whether you lead a business or you lead a church or you lead a family or whatever it is that you do or do not lead in that sense of the word leadership, you are called to lead people to Jesus and you are called to make disciples. And so we are all called, we are all chosen, we are all appointed by God to lead in some way, but it looks different uh, in, in the kingdom of God than it does in the world. And I think many of us suffer from what I would call leadership fear. Uh, and it's this idea that we are nervous about our uh, perceived lack of qualities 
that a leader should possess. Because we think about great leaders from history. And we, we did a thing last service where I had people yell out things, and I won't do that in this service. But uh, uh, great leaders throughout history, whether they be political or military leaders or uh, leaders in, in various disciplines of life or areas of life, many times we look at ourselves and we say, I don't have that factor, that it factor, that, uh, that thing that causes somebody to be a leader. Therefore, I'm not really a leader. I'll just be a follower. And yet in the kingdom of God, it's actually many things that the world would not look at as leadership qualities that Jesus says, this is what makes you great. This is what makes a leader that can actually lead people to a good destination in the kingdom of God. And so we're going to get into the word to, uh, today and look at Jesus establishing a radical new paradigm of leadership. It's one of my favorite stories in the Bible. It's in Mark chapter 10, verse 35. And we have this little scene of domestic life between Jesus and his disciples. Now, many people, uh, I don't know about you, but when I think about Jesus and his 12 disciples, I sort of think of about uh, 12 dudes that are all around 30 years old. But actually what we've, what we've uh, uh, some scholars believe is that Jesus' disciples, many of them were actually teenagers. So Jesus' disciples were more like a youth group, right? It's more like Pastor Kyle. I don't even think you're in your 30s yet, right? Not quite. So he's not at Jesus' level yet, but he's on his way. Um, I remember when I turned 33 uh, one year ago. No, I'm just kidding. It was farther back. But that I was like, this is the year Jesus was crucified, and here I am serving the Lord, you know, as a pastor. Hopefully, I will get to live a little bit longer than this. But Jesus was basically leading a youth group. His disciples, many of them were teens, 14, 15, 16, some of these uh, young men that Jesus had in his uh, uh, retinue here. And so it makes sense, some of the things they do and how they act. Because how many of you ever read the Bible and you go, why do they act like this? And then you realize they were teenagers, and it all makes perfect sense. So what we have here in this scene of life uh, in Mark chapter 10 is a picture about leadership and Jesus establishing what leadership will look like for his followers in juxtaposition to what it looks like in the world. We see in Mark 10, 35, the very first recorded calling of shotgun in history. How many of you have ever called shotgun, right? If you had siblings growing up, it was shotgun was like a sacred thing. You know what I mean? If you call shotgun and somebody gets in the front seat other than you, oh man, it's on, like, it's on like Donkey Kong. You know what I mean? There will be war. James and John's Zebedee's sons came up to him, this is Jesus, and they said, teacher, we have something we want you to do for us. What is it? I'll see what I can do. Arrange it, they said, so that we will be awarded the highest places of honor in your glory, one of us at your right and the other at your left. And what are they calling? They're saying, I call shotgun. Jesus said, you have no idea what you're asking. This is what I always say to my kids, you know. You have no idea what you're asking, like the, the, how, how hard it would be for me to get out of my bed and make you breakfast on a Saturday morning. You have no idea what you're asking. And Jesus says, are you capable of drinking the cup I drink, of being baptized in the baptism I'm about to be plunged into? And he's speaking of the cross. He's talking about the suffering. Because we want to follow Jesus when it means glory, but we don't want to finish follow Jesus when it means the cross, right? But Jesus says, guys, you don't know what you're asking, uh, because to get where I'm going, you got to go through the cross that's what he's referencing here. And in verse 39, they say, sure. They said, why not? <laughs> and Jesus said, come to think of it, you will actually drink the cup I drink and be baptized in my baptism. But as to awarding places of honor, that's not my business. There are other arrangements for that. Now, when the other 10 heard of this conversation, they lost their tempers with James and John. Why? Because they were trying to put themselves forward. Right? They were putting themselves, hey, give us the position of glory. We want to sit at your right and your left. We're calling shotgun. They lost their tempers 
uh, with James and John, and they begin to, you know, fight or whatever, bicker. And it makes sense. Again, these are probably teenage boys, some of them, and they're mad. Like, well, you know, why do you get that? Well, you don't deserve that. Like, I was, the one, I was there when Jesus did that miracle, and I was like, way to go, Jesus. And he looked at me and was like, good job. So I think I should be there, you know. And uh, it says, Jesus got them together to settle things down. And this is where he establishes this new paradigm of leadership that looks so dramatically different than what we see in our fallen, broken world. See, in our broken world, we, we see leadership is always about who can get the most power, authority, and maybe consensus on their side. And then basically, we're going to use that to smack down the other side of the argument. And so whether it's politics or any other sphere of life, this is kind of how it works in the world. Is like we get power and then we can enforce the way that we want it to be. And Jesus said this, You've observed how godless rulers throw their weight around, he said. And when people get a little power, how quickly it goes to their heads. It's not going to be that way with you. Jesus doesn't say, hey, may, try, try not to act this way. You guys should like, you know, try to do it a different way. He says, that's not how it's going to be in this house. He lays the law down. It's not how it's going to be in this kingdom. That's not what leadership really is. And he says this, whoever wants to be great, and I want you to mark that word great in your mind, because this word is meaningful as Jesus begins to unpack this, because he gives it kind of a polarizing meaning here. He says, whoever wants to be great must become a servant. Well, a servant is not really what we think of as being great. Like, I don't know if you've ever had the opportunity to go to, you know, a nice hotel or whatever at a banquet, and they, they have the people that come out, and they're wearing the black, you know, pants and the white tuxedo shirt with the little tie, you know. We were just at a conference in, in Orlando, Florida, and they were serving us, you know, and they were coming out very proper, the servants, right? Like, I, I, that, that would be like the closest approximation. I realize they're not servants in that sense, but if you watch Downton Abbey, you know, upstairs, <laughs> downstairs. And there's this difference, right? And we don't think about, like, Mr. Bates in Downton Abbey. Yes, I've watched every episode and loved it. Uh, we don't think of the servants as great. We think of the laird of the manor, right, as being great. And Jesus says, well, hold on a second. Actually, it's upside down. Because what the world says is great is, like, the person who's loud and proud and bossy and throws their weight around and kind of gets power and works this way. But actually, if you want to be great, this word great in Greek is the word megas or migas. And it's where we get our word mega from. So if you get a mega bag of chips or that's a, a, you know, a mega event, that's this word. Jesus says, if you want to be mega, if you want to be great, the word actually carries this connotation of being surprisingly great. So in other words, it makes you st stand back and say, wow. If you want to create a wow factor, if you want to be truly great, you need to be a servant. Whoever wants to be first among you must be your slave. What? That is what the Son of Man, that's Jesus referencing himself, the Son of Man has done. He came to serve, not to be served. And then to give his life away, give away his life in exchange for many who are held hostage. How many of you are glad that Jesus, who had every right to really stand upon his mega-ness, his greatness, that he took on the form of a human being and came to this planet and he came to serve not to be served. And not only did he serve, but he also sacrificed. That after he lived a life of service, that his final act of service was an act of sacrifice to give his life. And he says to his disciples, guys, 
You're calling shotgun, but you're missing the point entirely because what you think of leadership and glory and success is radically different from what it actually is in the kingdom of God. Now, if you study scripture and you study the story of God throughout history and all of this, what we find is that the fall of man, meaning all of us as human beings, when we actually fell in the garden, that we sort of went upside down. And so what we think is right and what we think is up is really wrong and it's really down and we're kind of upside down. And so Jesus has to unpack this and turn it right side up. And he's saying, look, you've taken on this idea of greatness and leadership, the way that your sort of natural eyes tune in and go, that's greatness, or that's what glory would look like, or that's what success is, and this is what a great leader is. You see it as like throwing your weight around and kind of achieving this, getting that promotion, or, or you know, taking on this position of authority, but actually true greatness is found in service. This is what Jesus' definition of leadership is. Now, you might be thinking, why are we talking about leadership? And the reality is, like I said in the intro, it's because you, we are all called to lead. Now, for some of you, you're working in uh, the business community. You might own a business or an entrepreneur, or maybe you're working in a corporation, or maybe you're a teacher. I don't know what your uh, sector of life is, but God has called you to be a servant leader in whatever sphere you are in, because this is how we, we create influence for the kingdom of God in places where God's kingdom is not established. So when you want to see God's kingdom show up in your school, when you want to see God's kingdom show up in your family, when you want to see it show up in your workplace, then the way that we actually introduce this influence of God's kingdom is through being servant leaders like Jesus was. Jesus came to a world that was completely uh, upside down, and as he showed up, his influence began to turn it right side up, and it was through servant leadership. And so today I want to give us five traits of servant leaders Five traits of servant leaders. Number one, servant leaders are humble. They are humble. John Dixon wrote a book uh, that I think is one of the, the best books. I would encourage you to read it. It's called Humilitas. This quote comes from that. He said, The real power of effective leadership is maximizing others, other people's potential, which inevitably demands also ensuring that they get the credit. When our ego won't let us build another person up, when everything has to build us up, then the effectiveness of the organization reverts to depending instead on how good we are in the technical aspects of what we do. And we have stopped leading and inspiring others to great heights. Leadership, by definition, is always about other people. The greatest leaders are not those who are known for the, the capacity or the, their, their individual ability or capacity. It's their ability and capacity to un unlock and unleash the potential of other people. The greatest leaders in history probably are not known. You probably don't know their name, and I don't either, because their influence is actually invisible, other than as it is magnified in the people that they've led. The greatest pastor in the world, the greatest politicians, the greatest leaders in any capacity of life, any area of life, it's not their own technical abilities, their performance, it's how they gave other people opportunity and, and lifted them up. It truly takes humility to be a truly inspirational leader. Inspirational leaders transfer their vision and their passion to those they lead, not just the burden of the task. How many of you know there's a difference between delegation and dumping? Because dumping is like, I don't want to do this job anymore. You could do it. I'm a delegator. No, that's dumping. Delegation is saying, I want to help you. I want to equip you. 
and I want to turn over the glory of this job. I want to turn over the, the, the reward of this as I hand over the responsibility. And I want to step back and let you shine. I want to make you the hero of this story. That takes humility, and that's what inspirational leadership is about. Now, it's fascinating because though this is a Christian concept and it comes from the Christian worldview, that's actually what the book Humilitas is all about. The book is about how when Jesus dies on the cross in 33 AD, you know, roughly around that period of time, that this idea of humility as a virtue actually shows up on the world scene. Because if you go back and you study ancient Rome, pre-Christ and pre-the Christian uh, movement, you study the ancient world, they didn't value humility. Uh, Greek philosophers like Aristotle and Plato and, uh, you know, his brother Plato, which had made the stuff we, you know, fixed. Um, yeah, that joke didn't really land, but, you know, it's all right. The greatest baseball players only hit it like one out of four times, you know. Um, they, they've, they didn't think it was even, uh, there was no honor in working with your hands. They thought it was dirty to work with your hands. Like there, there was no virtue of humility until, until Jesus actually demonstrates this. But as this idea of humility and, and, and uh, specifically humility exemplified by leaders has impacted the Western world, even the business community is, is finding that this is, is the way to the biggest profits and the most success. The Harvard Business Review said this, humble leaders improve the performance of a company in the long run because they create more collaborative environments. They have a balanced view of themselves, both their virtues and shortcomings, and a strong appreciation of other strengths and contributions while being open to new ideas and feedback. These unsung heroes help their believers to build their, help their believers to build their self-esteem, go beyond their expectations, and create a community that channels individual efforts into an organized group that works for the good of the collective. And they go on and on and on and talk about all these studies. But essentially, the business community has kind of caught on to this idea that it's not the guy or the lady who uh, sort of exemplifies leader, leadership in the way that we think about it, but it's those that actually begin to pour their individual gifts into the, the greater good and help others shine. And all of that requires humility, just being humble. It's fascinating because humility opens doors that pride slams shut. When you're proud, you close yourself off from receiving the best that other people have to give to you. I remember when I was a kid, my parents, as we went into music lessons, they would always tell us, and I specifically remember my dad, and I appreciate this, he would say, Jake, when your teacher is giving you the lesson, you need to like be attentive, you need to listen, and you need to say thank you. There's two words that will shut down any conversation, and here's what they are. I know. And let me tell you two words that open up a conversation. Thank you. Right? Thank you. When somebody tells you something, maybe you already know it, just say thank you. Because guess what? They might have, have taught you everything you know, but they might not have taught you everything they know. And oftentimes, when we're humble, we, have, we can receive much more. How many of you would say, man, when somebody's just humble, it opens my heart to them to want to share what I have. Because every one of us in this room has beautiful gifts and experiences and knowledge and wisdom to share. And when someone's humble, it opens that door to want to give them more. Think about that for yourself, though. And so the greatest leaders, if God wants you to lead in whatever sphere of life you're in, if you're humble, it doesn't make you weaker. It makes you stronger, and it makes you better, and it makes everybody else around you better. Number two trait of a servant leader is that they win influence through service. 
They win influence through service. Servant leaders don't demand respect. They earn it. They don't rely on positions of power, even if they occupy one. They serve others as a means to win influence and then use that influence for good. My friend Carrie Harvey, she says it like this. Authority is like soap. The more you use, the less you have. How many of you know you can only pull that card? This is my role. I'm I'm, I'm in charge. You can only pull the I'm in charge card once or twice before it starts to really lose its impact. Because the reality is that all of us are only following whatever particular leader that we're following, or if you're the leader, people are only following you, insofar as they've bought in to what it is you're talking about or bought into the thing that you're, you're talking about. And so there's a big difference between influence and authority. Now, of course, we need to honor authority. And yes, there are times where an authority has to come in and say, I'm the boss. This is how it's going to be done. That exists. There's a reason for it, so on and so forth. But if that is the primary expression of leadership, then what happens is you end up perhaps getting external compliance and losing internal resonance, internal agreement. And Bethany and I, you know, from, from day one with Joy Church, we, we realized, hey, we really can't lead from this position of like authority um, because what happens is you might get people to like agree with you on the outside, but they disagree on the inside. And if that's the case, you're, you've lost the game. And so we, would, we said, hey, we don't want to create like a bunch of policies because you have to police the policy. What we want to teach is principles and, and see if people will say, man, I like that principle and I see the value and the virtue and the truth in that. And I'm going to apply that, that principle in my own life. And when somebody applies a principle, rather than having a policy applied to them, it changes everything, doesn't it? And so as Christians wanting to influence the world around us, we have to get people to see the beauty of Jesus and the goodness of the gospel and the value of a life surrendered to Christ rather than just external agreement. There needs to be internal uh, agreement and internal resonance with that message. Therefore, servant leadership is critical because it wins influence through service. The object of servant leadership is the good of others, not just the achievement of objectives. So a servant leader doesn't just say, yeah, we got our thing done and all the tasks got done and we can check the boxes. We said, did we actually make this better? Did we actually make this place better? Do we elevate people up around us? And the greatest example of this is Jesus. This is how he led. This is how he leads. This is how he operates. Listen to what Paul says about Jesus in Philippians 2. He tells the Philippian church and us by extension, think of yourselves the way Christ Jesus thought of himself. He had equal status with God. He was mega. He was incredibly great. But didn't think so much of himself that he had to cling to the advantage of that status no matter what. Not at all. When the time came, he set aside the privileges of deity and took on the status of a slave. Became human. Having become human, he stayed human. It was incredibly, an incredibly humbling process. He didn't claim special privileges. Instead, he lived a selfless, obedient life and then died a selfless, obedient death. And the worst kind of death at that, a crucifixion. Because of that obedience, God lifted him high and honored him far beyond anyone or anything ever so that all created beings in heaven and on earth, even those long ago dead and buried, will bow and worship before this Jesus Christ and call out in praise that he is master of all to the glorious honor of God the Father. How did Jesus win influence? It was through service. It was through sacrifice. He did not consider his equal status with God as something that he should hold on to, but instead it was in the willingness to give it up that he won influence and his name is elevated above every name. 
And at his name, every knee will bow. So we win influence through service. If you want to win influence in your marriage, serve your spouse. If you want to win influence with your children, serve your kids. If you want to win influence in your job, serve. You want to win influence at your church, serve. Want to win influence in your city, serve. Number three, characteristic of a servant leader, they lead by example. They don't just say, do what I say, not as I do. They say, let me show you how it's done. Not in a way to show you how great I am, but in a way that you can see that I am actually a practitioner of what I preach. During the American Revolution, a man in civilian clothes rode past a group of soldiers repairing a small defensive barrier. Their leader was shouting instructions. Do it like this. Go here. Put it there. But making no attempt to help them. Asked why by the rider, he retorted with great dignity, Sir, I am a corporal. The stranger apologized, dismounted, and proceeded to help the exhausted soldiers. The job done, he turned to the corporal and said, Mr. Corporal, next time you have a job like this and not enough men to do it, go to your commander-in-chief and I will come and help you again. That man was none other than George Washington. (laughs) Servant leaders inspire others with their example. The greatest leaders know when to get their hands dirty in the right way. You know what I mean? Not the wrong way. (laughs) They know when it's time to say, look, let me show you and demonstrate because actions speak louder than words. That's why as members of Joy Church, you know, Bethany and I, were the lead pastors of the church, but we're also disciples and members of the church. We don't say, hey, it's your job to make disciples, but not ours. We say, no, as disciples of Jesus, we make disciples. We have to make sure we're following Jesus and spending the time in his word and being part of community, being humble and being submitted Because for all of us, we're members of this body, right? And we want to lead by example. Number four, characteristic of a servant leader, is they lead others by following Jesus well. See, leadership is always about a destination. Leadership is saying, hey, we're right here in this status quo, in this state of events or state of affairs, and we need to go somewhere else. We need to go there, right? We're here. We need to go there. But the problem is many leaders don't have the right picture of where there is and what what preferable future exists. Where are we going is the most important question that a leader can answer. And so if you don't have that destination figured out and in sight for yourself and very clear, you can't really lead people well. And so the thing is that we can give opinions. Well, I think we should do this with our city. Like I told you a few weeks ago, I wanted to run for mayor and I had all my ideas and then very quickly realized I really had no solutions. All I had was criticisms. <laughs> it's easy to give criticisms. It's easy to say things could be done differently. They could be done better. You know, it's easy to sit at, uh, up in the stands at Autzen and, and, you know, know exactly why what they're doing on the field is not correct, you know, or sit in your easy chair and be the armchair quarterback, right? But it's about getting this clear Uh, picture, and it starts with us in the kingdom of God following Jesus well, because we're called to follow Jesus and have our eyes on him and lead others to follow Jesus. They can follow Jesus through us, through our example. Great leaders are great followers first. Servant leaders don't make themselves or even their vision or their opinion the target of their leadership. They make Jesus the target. You know, every week when Bethany and I, we kind of Uh, when we preach or when one of us preaches, we'll sit down in the car on the way home and say, hey, 
you know, what could have been better or what, what, what could have I said differently or what shouldn't I have said or what should I have said instead of what I did say. Because we're both aware that whenever, and anybody that steps up here to preach or give a message, there's always going to be some fish and there's always going to be some bones. And the hope and prayer is that you would eat the fish and spit out the bones. Every once in a while, someone will say, Pastor, you know, and everybody's nervous to do this, but they'll come up, Pastor, or send me an email. If it's anonymous, I don't want to read it. But if it has your name on it, I'll, I'll read it. Pastor, you said this or that, and I think maybe you could have said it this way, or maybe it sounded like you were saying this, and I think you meant this other thing. And I'll be like, oh, thank you. I appreciate that. Because I know for a fact that sometimes you're going to get more Jake than I wish was there. I wish it was all Jesus, but sometimes it's Jake. Uh, and and that's, that's, that's the reality of it. But what I hope you would understand is that whenever you observe Bethany and I and what we say or do that does not match what Jesus is, please don't follow us, follow Jesus. And only follow in us what you see uh, Jesus doing. Does that make sense? But our hope and our aspiration is that, that we could at least model Jesus in some way and that you could follow Jesus through us. And that's not for us as pastors, that's for us as Christians, for all of us. That we are called to lead people to Jesus through our example. Just like what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 11.1, 1, follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. And what does this look like in a practical way? It means that every day we give great care and attention to having a real encounter with Jesus. More often than I wish, I'll look back at about one or two in the afternoon and go, you know what, I read my Bible today and I checked the boxes, but I don't think my radio is really in tune with what the Holy Spirit is saying. I don't think I've had a real encounter with the presence of God. I don't think that I'm really in the groove, the track, if you will, of following Jesus today because I find myself being selfish and maybe a little grumpy and all this kind of stuff and not serving. And I don't really feel like what I'm doing today is matching what Jesus would do today and I, rem and I realized, you know what, I didn't really start this day by getting on track and following Jesus well. And the reality is, like Jesus said in the book of John, apart from me, you can do nothing. And, and I have to come to that reality, I think we all do, that we have nothing to offer as a leader until we've sat at the feet of Jesus and we followed. And so servant leaders lead others by following Jesus well. Number five, the fifth and final characteristic of a servant leader. There are only five. There are no more. These are the totality of the characteristics and traits of a servant leader in existence. Uh, number five, they get their self-worth from their relationship with God, not their usefulness to God. And this is a game changer. Servant leaders get their self-worth from their relationship with God, not their usefulness to him. The basis of our faith is the work of Christ on our behalf. This must be the first fact that all of our leadership labors are built upon, that we don't work for Christ. Christ works in us and through us. And if Christ is not in and through us, then we are bringing nothing to the table. As good as it may seem, as eloquent as the words may be, as profound as the statement we made, if it wasn't inspired and infilled with the person of Christ, then it wasn't actually adding something to the conversation. And that, that our, the benefit we bring is Christ in us, the hope of glory working through us. 
Now, this is where, where this is powerful, though, for leadership, is that we don't derive our self-worth from our performance. How good did I preach this message? How good did I sing this song? How good did I teach my class? How much money did I make this year as a businessman? You know, how, how was my performance? And that's how I derive my self-worth. And then even on, in a Christian sense, how many people did I get saved? How many groups did I start? How big is the church? Whatever. None of those things. It's that I am valued and worthwhile simply because I have a God that loves me that saved me, that gave his life for me, and he wants to be with me. And from that intimacy and relationship comes the fruit that is produced in the world around me. And when you catch this, it takes all the pressure off. It doesn't mean you don't strive to be excellent. It doesn't mean you don't strive to be the best at what God has called you to do and put in your hands to do. You absolutely want to do the best. You simply do not derive your self-worth from your activity and performance. You derive your worth from your relationship with him and uh, consequently do a better job at what you were doing in the first place than if you were taking your self-worth from it. The Christian faith is interesting. It's different than every other world religion. You see, in every other world religion, there's a ladder that is established in rung one, rung two, rung three, that allows you, if you do this, you, take a st- you know, get a step towards God and you climb your way through your activity and performance to reach heaven or God or state of nirvana or whatever is the target. But the Christian faith is different and different than every other world religion in the fact that the Christian faith says, yes, there is a ladder, but you and I were completely incapable of even getting to the first rung. And instead of us getting to one and two and three, God himself climbed down that ladder, reached his hand down and said, here, I want to offer you an opportunity to to, to meet with me, to be my son, to be my daughter. I want to restore you to relationship. In every other world religion, you climb a ladder and get to God. In our faith, he climbed down to us and raises, raises us up in new life. C.S. Lewis observed that what most distinguishes the gospel from legalism is that legalism says God will love us if we are good, while the gospel tells us God will make us good because he loves us. And so great leaders don't derive their sense of worth, their self-worth, their identity from their performance or their work for God. They get it from this beautiful message, amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. I was blind, but now I see. Hudson Taylor said, we need to realize that the work of God does not mean so much man's work for God as God's own work through man. Hudson Taylor was one of the greatest missionaries to ever walk the face of the earth. He gave his life and served in China, was immensely productive and fruitful in his activity, some would say, for God. And yet you hear his words and you understand that the secret of his leadership success was not that he planned his days according to atomic habits or that he was so good for God. It was that he knew God and God knew him and through that relationship came fruit. It is God's work in us that allows us to do things with him. Our goal should be to do great things with God, not for God. Servant leaders get their self-worth from their relationship with him, not their usefulness to him. And that takes away the pressure and it sets you free to serve him in the way that he's called you to. In conclusion, you know, our, our city, our city around us, but also the city of man, in contrast to the city of God, is desperate for real leadership. And we need leaders to emerge in the traditional leadership spheres of politics, 
the business, in the arts, and all these kinds of areas. But I think in messages about leadership, what oftentimes us regular people might hear is, okay, this is for five or six people out of this room, but it's not. It's for everybody. Because what our world needs is not just leaders to get onto, you know, the 24-hour news cycle and spout a different ideology. What the world needs is people from the grassroots to lead in whatever sphere of life God has placed them in. Whether you are a politician or a plumber, God has called you to lead well as a kingdom leader, selflessly exemplifying the love and the service of the kingdom of God that distinguishes us from the kingdom of this world. And in that way, we change the world in small ways, leading to a great result. Amen? Father, right now, I thank you for this message. I thank you for your words that you gave to your disciples as they argued about who would be greatest. And you gave us a, a new way to live and a new way to lead that looks so different than the world around us. Lord, I pray that today we would hear these words and be that good soil that your word could be planted in, that we would say, I'm going to take the words of Jesus. I want to I be great, but not, not just for myself and not just for my family, but I want to make a great impact around on the world around me. I want to see people come to know you through my life, Lord. And therefore, I'm going to, I'm going to serve my city. I'm going to serve my church. I'm going to be humble. And I'm going to get my worth out of my relationship with you as I allow other people to follow me as I follow you. I keep my eyes upon you. Lord, I pray that you would raise the leadership quotient in this room, that you would raise the leadership level in all of us, that we would say, God, use me in my gifts, great or small. Use me in my securities and insecurities. Use me as I am to make a difference in the world around me. I want to be a servant leader. I want to follow you and let others follow me as I follow you. Jesus, thank you for this word. Let it produce great fruit in our lives in Jesus' name. Amen. Real quick as we end, go ahead and bow your head and close your eyes. If there's anybody here or anyone joining us online, that has not put their faith in Jesus, you've not given your life to Christ, this is a great opportunity to start that journey. Jesus calls all of us, regardless of where we are, what we've done, where we've been, to follow him. And he made a way for us to be reconciled with God when he gave his life at the cross. Now, following Jesus is not just a prayer. It's not just something you do on a Sunday, one Sunday in your life. Oh, I, get, I prayed that prayer, now I'm good. It's fire insurance. No, following Jesus is a life time. You're giving him lordship of your life, and in return, he's giving you eternal life, the gift that he provided for us when he paid for our sins at the cross. And so today, if you want to make that decision to follow Jesus, I just want to ask you to raise your hand. If you're online, you can participate in this as well. Just raise your hand so I can see. We're not going to embarrass you. We're not going to call you out. We're just going to pray together. If that's you, would you raise your hand so I can see? Jake, I want to, I want to follow Jesus. I want to put my faith in him. Anybody in this place? And those of you that are joining us online, amen. Thank you. Anybody in this place and those online, we're going to pray this prayer together. Just repeat after me. Dear Jesus, thank you for saving me. Thank you for giving your life for me and paying for my sin with your sacrifice at the cross. I put my faith and trust in you and in you alone. I repent of my sin. And I commit to you to follow you. I receive your grace. Thank you for saving me. In Jesus' name, amen.